In the run-up to the midterm election of 2022, it can often feel like there's more than a little 1994 in the air. We've got a Democratic president with low approval ratings, a Republican minority pressing hard to win control of the House, and not long before Election Day, dozens of Republicans gather for a made-for-TV event. But we're all united behind Kevin McCarthy. He's the one that's unified the party. He's the one that came up with this plan. He's the one that's going to take us back to the majority. And with that, it's my honor to introduce my good friend, the next Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy. Thank you, Michael. Unlike 1994, though, these Republicans are not on the steps of the Capitol. They're in Pennsylvania at a manufacturing plant. What we're going to roll out today is a commitment to America in Washington. Not Washington, D.C., but Washington County, Pennsylvania. And you want to know why? Because it's about you. The commitment to America is a one-page list of ideas and principles. We cannot let this great nation fall. We're not going to let... We will root out the corruption and return it to the people's house. So... Is what everyone understands, is that under Democrats, your taxes go up, your regulations... It means your community will be protected. Your law enforcement will be respected. Your criminals will be prosecuted. We believe in a future that's built on freedom. Listening to this, you might think Newt Gingrich is still running the show on the Republican side. He's not, of course, but he definitely hasn't left the political stage either. In fact, he's been helping the House Republicans this year. Here he is plugging their efforts on Sean Hannity's show. the, The failures, as you pointed out, and I think that if you look at the commitment to America, at commitmenttoamerica.com, you'll see all of this. What, what the Republicans in the House have done is they've matched up solutions against Biden's Democratic failures. The populist so, yeah, wing of the Republican Party, now arguably its dominant force, speaks like Newt. And when it comes to the strategy of the party's House leadership, he sounds like he's very much in the loop. In 2022, you can hear Newt Gingrich on a number of platforms. He's got a podcast called Newt's World. And let me say up front, I believe that this podcast is with the next Speaker of the House. I do believe they're going to win. I also have to say before introducing him that I have known Kevin for a very long time. In fact, I think he was getting his Boy Scout badge. And he's a regular pundit on Fox News. Uh, that this is anything except a left-wing power grab financed by people like George Soros, uh, deeply laid in at the local level. And frankly, I I think that it is a a corrupt, stolen election. Gingrich has aligned himself with Donald Trump. He was one of the first big-name Republicans to do so back in 2016. Trump even considered making him his running mate that year before settling on Mike Pence. And Gingrich continues to make news. In September... The January 6th committee wrote to him requesting an interview. Thompson says that the committee has email evidence uh, that the former House Speaker and longtime Trump ally was advising uh, members of Trump's 2020 campaign to run these TV ads uh, that were pushing false claims of election fraud, specifically uh, these false claims that Georgia election workers were smuggling in suitcases of fake ballots into these polling locations after the committee says... It it can feel like Newt is everywhere in today's political world, and yet... He hasn't held elected office in a generation. It took him 16 years in the House to become Speaker and just under four to lose it all. His reign as Speaker was brief, 
tumultuous, and consequential. So, what happened? This is The Revolution. I'm Steve Kornacki. Episode 6, our final episode, Aftershock. Uh, I'm reading a few new books right now. Uh, You might want to be interested in Let's go back to 1995. For all the fame Newt Gingrich had acquired inside Washington and among C-SPAN junkies, the Republican Revolution made him a certified national celebrity. Here he was on Capitol Hill with the comedian Chris Farley, who portrayed Gingrich on Saturday Night Live. I promise to smile when people call me Landslide. I promise not to kill Big Bird. I promise not to kill Big Bird. (laughs) I promise that my book will be way less boring than Al Gore's book. But for Newt, the new national spotlight proved harsh. The provocative musings that had worked so well when he was giving late-night speeches in an empty house chamber played differently with the whole country watching. Gingrich created another furor by blaming a brutal murder where a baby was cut out of a pregnant woman's abdomen on the Democratic welfare state. And politically, he miscalculated, going to war with the Clinton White House in the fall of 1995. I don't blame the president for wanting to negotiate in a tough way, but to not even sit down. I mean, to basically have walked off and said, close the government down, I won't talk with you. The government shutdown of 1995 was supposed to be Newt's way of finishing off Bill Clinton and the Democrats. Officially, the dispute was about Medicare funding, with Newt and his Republican allies arguing for cutting the rate of growth in the name of balancing the budget. Smaller government, no more deficits. Wasn't this what the country had been crying out for in the revolution of 94? Surely, Newt figured, the country would see it this way and turn on Clinton for good. But Clinton held firm and refused to sign off. He wasn't for balancing the budget if it meant cutting Medicare, he said. And the country, it turned out, was with him and not Newt. NBC News, Wall Street Journal, CNN, every poll I've seen, by two to one, Mr. President, veto the Republican measures. It's too harsh, it's too extreme. And you know why? Because Because the information they've been given is totally false. By the end of 1995, thanks to the government shutdown, Bill Clinton's political fortunes had been revived and newts were spiraling downward. There were ethics issues, too. In December of 1995, the House Ethics Committee was deep into an investigation of Gingrich. An issue was a televised college course he taught while serving in Congress. How was it funded? And had he used it improperly for political purposes? To all charges, the speaker denies any wrongdoing and blames Democrats. They are misusing the ethics system in a deliberate, vicious, vindictive way. And I think it is despicable, and I have just about had it. After attacking so many other members over ethical breaches, Gingrich was now getting a taste of his own medicine, and his poll numbers were tanking. Let's look at the latest poll from NBC News and the Wall Street. By the middle of 1996, Gingrich was the least popular political figure in America. 61% negative amongst women, amongst black Americans, 7% approval, 65, two out of every three blacks, and independents, key swing voters, only 14% approval. What happened, Mr. Speaker? Oh, I think, I think some of it was I was probably too rambunctious and I made some mistakes. Uh, some of it, though, has to be attributed to the fact that there have been 10,800 commercials run in local markets in this country attacking me, most of them paid for by union money. Two years in, some Republicans were so upset with Gingrich, he barely was re-elected speaker. 
To the degree I was too brash, too self-confident, or too pushy, I apologize. Remember those days after the 1994 revolution when so many people, Democrats and Republicans alike, assumed Bill Clinton was toast in 1996? Well, by the time that election rolled around, Clinton was running ads like this. The president bans deadly assault weapons. Dole Gingrich, vote no. The president passes family leave. Dole Gingrich, vote no. The president stands firm. A balanced budget protects Medicare. Disabled children, no again. The sweeping victory for President Clinton. You know, he's the first Democrat since Franklin Roosevelt to win a second term to the White House, taking states that should have gone to Republicans. Clinton went on to win a second term with ease. And while Newt did stay on as speaker with a reduced Republican majority, the ethics issues continued to dog him. He became the first speaker ever reprimanded by the House for ethics violations and was fined $300,000 for misusing tax-exempt funds. By 1998, Newt was talking humility on WHYY's Fresh Air with Terry Gross. In your new book, Lessons Learned the Hard Way, you have a whole chapter titled Learn to Keep Your Mouth Shut. Um, When would that have come in most handy for you? Oh, I think clearly the biggest single example was the Air Force One incident, which for our listeners... The Air Force One incident was a callback to the 1995 government shutdown when Newt had complained to the press that he'd been ignored on the official presidential plane by Bill Clinton. To many, it sounded like he was saying he was shutting the government down because his feelings were hurt. A famous New York Daily News cover lampooned Gingrich with a caricature of him as a crybaby in diapers. Now here he was on fresh air, trying to be an adult. It got covered terribly. It sounded like I was whining and whimpering. And it was probably the worst single press I got in three years in terms of just something that was totally unnecessary that I didn't have to do. And that as a result, weakened us for no good reason. Politically, Newt was such a liability to his party that a group of House Republicans tried to oust him in a coup in 1997, and they nearly succeeded. He was weakened further, and then... In his final months, Gingrich led a bare-knuckled battle to impeach President Clinton, which backfired with the public. Republicans lost seats in the 98 elections. Under his leadership, the party's approval rating had plummeted from 50% to 33%. Betting on impeaching Bill Clinton and losing at the polls. Within days of that 1998 midterm election, Newt read the writing on the wall. Sources say House Speaker Newt Gingrich worked the phones today, desperately trying to save his job. In his first public statement since last night's stunning decision to give up his job after the weak Republican showing in the elections, Speaker Newt Gingrich said he did it to head off damage to his party. I could hardly stand by and allow the party to cannibalize itself in that situation, and I thought it was best for all of us. Among the unhappiest Republicans in Washington today, members of GOPAC, a Republican activist group. And I can't pretend any of you that I saw it coming because, frankly, I thought I was in one world at 6 o'clock and was in a different world by midnight. I think it's something all of us have to look at. Let me just say to all of you that with your help, as I leave public office and rejoin the ranks of active citizenship, the venue changes and the cause lives on. Thank you, good luck, and God bless you. That was November of 1998. 
Gingrich was forced from the speakership and announced he would resign from the House entirely. It was all over. Or at least the congressional phase of Newt Gingrich's career was over. Gingrich was out of the House, but the populist tide he'd ridden to win the majority still hasn't receded. These days, a generation later, the country feels bitterly divided. And Gingrich himself remains a polarizing figure in our politics. To wrap up this series, we wanted to take some time to consider the legacy of Newt Gingrich and of the 1994 revolution. Coming up, I'm going to talk with three close observers of politics, people who have watched Newt Gingrich, interviewed him, and witnessed so much of what we've covered in these six episodes. So after the break, I'll talk with Eleanor Clift, John Podhoritz, and Susan Page. We made multiple requests to speak with Newt Gingrich for this podcast, but he was never made available. And then, after this series was released, we did hear from him. And you'll hear that conversation in Episode 7. But his story deserves thorough consideration. So, I spoke with three very astute political journalists and observers. First, Susan Page. She's USA Today's Washington bureau chief. And she's been covering politics for more than four decades. Yeah, well, I was covering the the White House, and I can say that the president and the first lady and I were all equally shocked at what we saw happening on that election night. Next up, John Podhoritz is the editor of Commentary Magazine, and he hosts the magazine's podcast. He's also a columnist at the New York Post. I did the first long profile of Gingrich in early 1984, and no one had done a big you know, one of those, like, style section profiles of him. And Eleanor Clift. She started covering politics for Newsweek in the 1970s, and now she's a columnist for The Daily Beast. She's the author of many books, including one that she co-authored about Washington in the mid-1990s with a chapter on Newt. It's called War Without Bloodshed, The Art of Politics. Well, his aides over the years always used to say there was the good newt and there was the bad newt. And the good newt was very, very good and the bad newt was very, very bad. And in his office, there was a big box that was labeled Newt's Ideas. And then there was a much smaller shoebox size box that said Newt's Good Ideas, <laughs> you know. Eleanor helped kick off our conversation by reminding us of Newt's unique relationship to the media. Gingrich had courted the press from his early days. You know, I... I first met him in the early 1970s when I was working in Atlanta for Newsweek, and he was a professor at West Georgia College, and he'd written a paper about how politicians could use television, which now seems like, yeah, pretty obvious, but um, it was it was an, a, an extensive paper, and he, he wanted people to read it. And he, he would stop by the Newsweek office. I was the only one who paid any attention to him. And I wasn't even a reporter then. But he <laughs> would he went to the Atlanta Constitution and he uh, befriended all the top editors at the Atlanta Constitution uh, because he wanted to know how, how the newspapers worked, you know, how reporters made their judgments. I mean, he really studied like uh, an anthropologist how the media and politics uh, worked. Uh, 
I mean, the planning that went into this, he, he was not an overnight success, although the country treated him that way yes. and the media treated him that way. Well, you know, Steve, one of the really interesting things about Gingrich that Eleanor gets at is that he was a very rare combination. In fact, it wasn't even a combination. He was like 80% a brilliant strategist and 20% a functional politician, by which I mean, ordinarily, we would think of somebody who came up with this long-range plan for a Republican resurgence or surge as being somebody who is like, works for the politician, not the politician themselves. But he was far better a strategist, tactician, looking at House rules to jimmy with them, figuring out that there was this way to get on C-SPAN every night that Republicans came to dominate. All kinds of little bits and pieces. When he finally took power in 1994, 1995, he had grave organizational weaknesses. He had grave leadership weaknesses. He was too focused on himself. And he really did. His head swelled, and he believed he was co-equal to the president. And he ended up with his, you know, after four years and some ill-advised decisions and some other things going on, with a party in open revolt against him, even though he really was the architect of this takeover. But once the building was built, managing the building was really not in his wheelhouse. Yeah, Susan, I'm curious, what did it feel like in the immediate aftermath of the election, the early, you know, January 95, when the takeover happens? Um, you know, Newt had this vision, obviously, not just of a, of a Republican majority of the House, but just a top-to-bottom conservative Republican majority. This was like... In some way, this was, 94 was the start of finishing off modern liberalism. Did it, did it feel like that was happening? I don't think we all understood fully uh, the long-term consequences of the vision that, that Newt Gingrich had. Uh, I think we knew something big had happened, that a, it was a different kind of politics. You know, part of it was policy because Gingrich had more of just a kind of a staunch conservatism, a splash of populism. Uh, but a lot of it was was his tone. It was his willingness to be so fiercely partisan. And here came Newt Gingrich, who not only had a very specific agenda uh, that he wanted Republicans to push, he also wanted them to, he wanted his members to live in their districts, have the, leave their families in their districts so that they spent less time in Washington, which gave them less time to even know people who served on the other side of the aisle. He had a Willingness to compare his opponents to traitors who didn't wish well for the country and his side as patriots. He used a kind of language that has now become quite routine, but at that moment was shocking. We should have understood more because there had been signs of the public's dissatisfaction with the way politics as usual was going. And certainly the Clinton administration laid the groundwork for upheaval by being so inept those first two years. But I don't think we understood how thoroughly politics was about to change and for the long haul. Well, the contract with America had all those steps and um, they would, one after another, in rapid fashion, they passed it through the House. I think it was Chris Farley on Saturday Night Live uh, did a wonderful imp impersonation of how this legislation was just flying out of out of the House over to the Senate where Bob Dole thought nothing of it. <laughs> and, you know, today it's commonplace. The uh, majority leader doesn't schedule anything or the minority leader blocks things. 
But you know, then there was a, there was a lot of uh, animosity between uh, Dole and, and Gingrich because Dole wasn't going to be uh, Gingrich's handmaiden, and not much of that contract with America went anywhere. But it created the illusion that the Republicans, these new Republicans, were really in charge. And then the Oklahoma City bombing happened, and Clinton went out there and gave one of his speeches where he really was the the leader of the country, the healer. Uh, People wanted to hear from him. And in the end, Gingrich and Clinton actually worked together. And they, each for their own interests, they balanced the budget. They got the welfare reform bill through. And Gingrich and Clinton actually loved each other because they had the same intellectual wandering minds where they could talk about anything for hours. And Clinton quickly figured out he could charm Gingrich and get something done. And and he figured out what to do and how to salvage his presidency. I, I wonder, um, we've, we've talked to a lot of people, um, you know, a lot of, you know, DC characters uh, uh, from the 70s, 80s and 90s um, about the 1994 revolution and, and what it means long term. But I, I'm wondering, each of you, kind of, when you look back with the benefit of hindsight, what, what does it mean to you? What about you, Susan? Gingrich was speaker for only four years, and he changed everything. He is the godfather of the politics we see today. Uh, he shaped the Republican Party uh, both ideologically and in terms of its tactics in ways that they continue to play out. Um, that changed the way many Democrats responded. It laid the groundwork for a disruptive, our most disruptive president, Donald Trump. Um, for a guy who wasn't actually in charge for that long, he did a lot. I, I wonder. I mean, I, I think that Gingrich had this four-year reign, that his, his contribution in American history, whether you like it or you don't like it, was in bringing down the one-party rule in the House, which was, you know, not that we have that much history, but a historical anomaly and a very weird set of circumstances. Where we are now is probably where we should be. We're a pretty divided country ideologically and politically. And so the the control of the House and the Senate should be up for grabs, in every election. it's That's what elections are for, not to sort of ritualistically enshrine one party control of one or the other body or the presidency over time. He was brilliant at that and terrible at managing and being a kind of national leader, a national figure. His edges were too jagged. The material that he had honed about sort of the culture war material that he had honed rang falsely on the ears of people who were not already in agreement with him. And indeed, the reaction to him, not just to Clinton, but to him, was what made the George W. Bush presidency. Remember, he ran as a compassionate conservative. Why did he say that? Because he was saying, I'm not Gingrich. I don't want to balance the budget on the backs of the poor, George W. Bush said. And of course, you know, that was an incredibly close election with Al Gore. But when Bush came in, he ran a different kind of politics. He said, I can work with Democrats. His first major piece of legislation was a bill that Bush negotiated with Teddy Kennedy, the No Child Left Behind Act. And then 9-11 happened. And again, the political table of the United States was reset in an entirely new way. It's possible that Trump 
coming in kind of reflected stuff that Gingrich had had nascently. But there was a big, long period of time in which it was not a dominating fact in the Republican Party, which nominated John McCain and Mitt Romney after it had nominated and elected George W. Bush twice. And then at more, more Perot than Gingrich comes Trump, a guy from the outside who says, You're all, you all stink. It's all broken. Everything is terrible. I alone can fix it. So I, I don't know that Newt was anything but a figure of his time. And that uh, I know there's this idea that this all sort of bubbled over time. But, you know, if the Iraq war had gone better, there never would have been a Trump. If the Iraq war had gone better, you know, there wouldn't have been an Obama. Like, it's historical agency in the 2000s had much more to do with where the Republican Party is now than what whatever forces Newt Gingrich corralled to have this limited but very important effect on one one House of Congress. Eleanor, how about you? Well, if uh, Ralph Nader hadn't run in 2000, we wouldn't have had an Iraq war either. We would have had Al Gore. You could play the what-if game a lot. Uh, But Gingrich, for his first 15 or 16 years in Congress, was was seen as a bomb thrower, a backbencher, somebody who didn't matter. Okay, he took those tactics and he inspired a whole— new generation of Republicans to use those tactics. And then they moved further to the right than he was. If I don't know, maybe to the right isn't the right word, but uh, more more populist, more uh, more disruptive. And uh, he ultimately couldn't control them. And every speaker since has had that problem. John Boehner lasted the longest, and he went shuffling off singing zippity-doo-dah after, uh, a, I guess there were two failed coup attempts Uh, within a party to get rid of him. No Republican speaker has managed to accomplish anything uh, since because they always, uh, to get where they are and to get ahead, they create uh, worse versions of themselves in this sort of disruption category. And we're seeing the same thing with McCarthy. Look at all the election deniers who are going to be in the new Congress and uh, the new the new piece by Robert Draper, where Marjorie Taylor Greene says he's going to give me a lot of power and leeway because he can't he can't be speaker he can't get votes or anything unless he has that element of the party and that element of the party has gotten more and more outrageous uh, each cycle. Maybe we can trace it back to Gingrich, but Gingrich looks to me like a kind of a weak intellectual version of what we see today. He did actually have some thoughts about the country and the future and all of that. People today, all they care about is how, how they come across on, on social media and how they can raise money. And they've discovered that you do that just by, you know, being, being totally outrageous. Susan? Look, politics, politics is never a straight line. But Newt Gingrich was a pivot point in our politics that if you take a 30,000-foot picture, we're still on the course that he set us on. One more area I wanted to explore with you um, would be, I view the 1994 midterm as the first nationalized midterm election. Um, and, I, and I feel it, we are now totally immersed in, in, in pure, almost purely nationalized politics, meaning that whatever corner of the country you live in, whatever state, county, neighborhood you're in, 
your your voting decisions now really are driven by what you're seeing on the national stage and what you're consuming from national media or or social media or whatever's viral on social media and I, and I think back to one of, one of the things we've talked about in this podcast um, before is you know Newt coming to the house when Tip O'Neill was speaker and Tip O'Neill's famous line was all politics is local. And, and it was back in this era when when people would vote for a Democrat for one office, a Republican for another office, and they'd, they'd, they'd split up their votes. And, and that in 1994, there had been an evolution in the media, the rise of talk radio, cable news, you know, CNN at that point existed, MS and Fox were on the way. Um, the media was evolving in a way that was creating um, fertile ground for the nationalization of politics. And that that, that started in 94 or reached critical mass in 94 and has really accelerated since. Is that something you see? Well, and there's no local media. And so, and candidates, uh, they they do grassroots stuff, but they can't be everywhere. So it's all filtered through the national media and uh, and the interests of the two parties. I had dinner uh, with, you know, a civilian, you know, someone who is not in the media and not in politics. And he said this very interesting thing to me. He said, why should I, living uh, in Manhattan, care about who the governor of Texas is? I shouldn't care about who the governor of Texas is. I have a gubernatorial race right here in my own state. But I get five emails a day from Beto O'Rourke asking me for money. Why is Beto O'Rourke asking me for money? And if you actually think about it, it's really kind of a brilliant point. So, John, let me, uh, first of all, congratulations on having dinner with civilians. Mm-hmm. Thank very you very much, yes. big-minded of you <laughs> yes, and uh, yes, p- yes. possibly <laughs> useful. Maybe we should all have dinner with civilians <laughs> more often. The fact is, I think uh, Americans increasingly see uh, the things, issues they care about affected by people who are elected in other places. And nothing exemplifies that more than the Supreme Court decision in Dobbs, right? That was a result of the election of Republican presidents who got to put— uh, justices who oppose abortion rights on the court and overturn a, a precedent that had stood for 50 years. So when you when people think about why should I care about the uh, election uh, in some other state, they know that senators confirm judges and that's important. So I think, especially as the parties got sorted out, so whether you're a Republican in North Carolina or New Hampshire or Oregon, you're going to stand for basically the same things as persuaded people that party affiliation, it's not quite a parliamentary system yet, but it's persuaded people that party affiliation is just as important as the character of the candidate that they have running locally. More important, obviously, because character matters almost not at all from what we can tell. Well, in in very big picture, though, Susan, what you were just describing, it seems to me that was Newt's animating vision. It was the nationalization of politics. It was to get the Republicans in North Carolina or New Hampshire or Texas or wherever to all basically sound the same. And for that matter, the Democrats. And the calculation there was that 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 would work out to 60-40 Republican advantage. And he's gotten it. But what what it actually worked out to was 50-50. Yeah. If if you want the contract with America, it applied no matter where the Republican was running in 1994 that and that so so if you that's what you support vote republican yeah and there's there's no uh, once you're sorted out in these parties there's there's like no turning back right i mean we're don't you think we're just going to be living with nationalized elections forever i mean, forever foreseeable future 
What about you, Eleanor? Once upon a time, there were no battleground states. I know when Jimmy Carter ran in 76, he went everywhere. There weren't, some states weren't more important really than, except for how many electoral votes they might have. I'm not sure what year uh, the, uh, the, the election basically came down to, you know, half a dozen, 10, 10 states. Well, I think it was 88. I mean, if you think about it, uh, uh, supposedly George H.W. Bush was down 17 points to Dukakis uh, in, at the beginning of September in 88. I sort of doubt that could possibly be true since he won by seven or eight. But they ran as though they were, and they went to states where they could dominate. And then, of course, 92 happened, and you had this very bizarre map because you didn't know whether this third-party candidate might or might not win a state or two. And there was this idea, right, that was that the Republicans had an electoral lock on the Senate because the solid Democratic South had turned into a solid Republican South. And James Carville said, we picked, we picked the electoral the lock, right? lock, right? Well, have people's priorities changed? What I mean, what's changed since then? The way the media operates? Um, that's kind of one, one of the one, one of the issues, but also the character of the campaigns and the personalities uh, underscored, especially since Trump, the importance of, uh, of, of personality. I mean, I think two things happened uh, after the 94 uh, elections. I mean, you mentioned that, you know, Fox and MSNBC both were sort of incepted in 1995, I think, 96. Uh but uh, there were these two nationalizing events. Again, not, not just that politics gets nationalized because somebody thinks of issues to nationalize. But um, uh, the Lewinsky gate and the impeachment of Bill Clinton was the first, which is what made these cable channels. It, it gave them uh, something to do 24 hours a day for 10 months. Um, and anybody in the media knows this. Like, you could go, you, if you were somebody around, you got five phone calls a day, can you go on this chat? Can you go here? Can you be in this Brady Bunch checkered box to talk about what happened today in impeachment at 8 in the morning, at 11 at night? It didn't matter. There was this inexhaustible maw. It's all anybody talked about. And these networks were launched, essentially, after two years of, you know, very slow, not quite sure who they were, what they were, just covering impeachment and then 9-11 happened. And 9-11 really was the foundational, you know, this whole country believed that, you know, we had been attacked, that we were in something together, that there was something large and fundamental and existential that happened. And those things also ended up being the things that helped advance the sort, like really, really, really have people say, which side are you on? Where do you stand? And these these nationalizing events then, I think, dovetailed with this change, you know, and it was also a larger American change. I mean, you know, regionalism has been on the wane for the last half century. You go to any city, um, you know, every mall has the same shops, every strip of gas stations has the same 12 fast food places and a cheesecake factory doesn't matter where you are in the United States everything sort of looks the same and so we we also have a nationalized politics because we have a nationalized everything so Johnny it always comes back to food for you right dinner I, I, the, yeah, dinner the, the cheesecake factory and all the re yeah. restaurants are the same um, but I would let's, there's a little bit of a chicken and egg here when you talk about the nationalized media I mean the politics got more nationalized that encouraged the media to become more nationalized that encouraged the natural nationalization of 
of our of our politics. And I think, as John said, big events, big actual events, not the dreams of politicians have pushed us in that direction as well. And we're just a different kind of country than we were um, 50 years ago, uh, 40 years ago. I don't know when you, since 1994, in terms of like the, the world in which we picture ourselves. Coming up, Susan, Eleanor, John, and I talk about Newt Gingrich's alignment with Donald Trump and the state of the Republican Party today. Um, I, I, I'm wondering this question of, of, of a through line from, you know, potentially from Newt in 94 to the, to the present day. I, I wonder, though, you know, Newt didn't totally disappear after he left the speakership. Prominent commentator, runs for president in 2012. And there's this famous moment in South Carolina where he's languishing in third place in the polls. And he's asked a question by John King the moderator at the debate about accusations from his ex-wife that one of his ex-wives that he had asked for an open marriage. And you, you, you would think this is four years before Trump. You would think this is a very damaging allegation. And he completely turns it around into an attack on the media and literally gains 30 points, wins the South Carolina primary in a runaway. He doesn't win the nomination, but it's a moment that tells you there, there's something there that he's tapping into. And then when 2016 comes along, you know, so many Republicans waited so long to get behind Trump, but Newt didn't. Newt, Newt was on to him early. Could you have imagined the Newt of 94 being attracted to the politics of the Trump of 2016? Is there, is there something consistent? I think there is an absolute behavioral through line from Newt to Trump. Newt went places as a leading American politician, went, had an aggressiveness quality that was new in modern politics. And he deployed media, like the C-SPAN Minute, in an inventive new way, in a weird way similar to Trump. And he understood that there was a world of people, they were so full of rage, that if he could reflect their rage, this, um, what uh, Joe uh, Klein had called the radical middle, that uh, even though I, we think of Gingrich as being, you know, a, a total rock-ribbed, hysterical right-wing Republican. But, you know, this was the force that elected, that got Perot 19% of the vote. And Gingrich understood it better than any other politician in Washington did in 93 and 94 and harnessed it a little bit. And that is exactly what Trump was. Trump was the Perot voter 22 years later, added with the World Wrestling Federation voter and the Alex Jones listener and this weird proletarian right, you know, non-college educated, never voting, uh, dispossessed uh, white men. And um, was that part of Gingrich's coalition yeah, but a very but a small part, but not a bit. And then it became a kind of dominating voice in 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 Trump and what what Gingrich toyed with. Trump just you know like as he always did, stripped the bark off and was unambiguous about. 
you know, just put it front and center. This is who we are. They're stealing the country from you. They're taking everything away from you. I'm going to give things to you. They give them to all these wealthy people and elite people, and I'm going to turn around and give it to you because that's all Washington does is give things and I'm going to give them to you. Susan, how about you? Trump could maintain enormous political power after losing office, which he continues to exploit to this day. Gingrich did not never figure that out, right? Once once Gingrich left Congress, it's not that he doesn't want to be powerful. Uh, it's that he's no longer he's on the fringe. He he ran for he runs for president in 2012 in despite South Carolina, he doesn't do very well. In 2016, he wants to be Trump's vice president. That didn't work out either. Um, I can can understand why some of these younger Republicans don't have any clear picture of Gingrich and his contribution because it it ended like in 1999. Uh, But I think it is hard to deny that they're living with it, even if they don't understand that. Right. But there was a category error that Gingrich made that's very important here in relating to, you know, Trump, look, got 74 million votes in 2020. That's a huge number of people voting for him. And then he said he didn't lose, and a bunch of them think that he didn't lose. And so he's standing there still as a political player. Gingrich made this horrible category error in 1995. He thought he was toe-to-toe with the president of the United States. Clinton got 40 million votes. Gingrich got 115,000 in his district. These are not co-equal figures. He was Speaker of the House because he was voted Speaker by 260 people, not by the country. He won no electoral votes. Like, when he decided to go toe-to-toe with Clinton and, like, play chicken with Clinton on, on shutting the government down or when he wanted to whine and complain that he didn't get a good seat on the on the Air Force One going to Yitzhak Rabin's funeral, he was out of his league just simply as a matter of practical American politics. And he overplayed his hand. He thought he was more powerful than he was. And we in the media are partially responsible for that because, you know, he became the most important person in American politics in part because we were so blown away by what he had accomplished and because it was an incredibly interesting story, and he fell for it. Gingrich, he wants to be relevant. And the way you're relevant today, if you can't be powerful, you hang around someone who is powerful. And that's why you can see him in the outer fringes of the of the, of the the Trump crowd. I would love to ask him whether he has any regrets, but I think I know what the answer is, and the answer would probably be no. I'm curious, too, um, to, to separate Newt from 1994, if if you see if, if the legacy or part of the legacy of 1994 is just the kind of sorting out, they call it the, 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 the great sort, the big sort that's taken place here where, you know, I mean, I, I see this myself whenever we look at elections and election returns. So much of it is is predictable ahead of time. There's geographic and 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 uh, cultural and demographic divides between the parties that are vast and that are deep and have led us to this place where we're basically a 50-50 nation, but almost everybody is on one team or the other. And there's this vanishing number of swing voters. And I wonder if 1994 is a critical point in the development of that. Susan? Yeah, not teams, tribes. Mm-hmm. 1994 was uh, part of the process of becoming political tribes instead of teams. And you, you see that in both parties. You see, remember those Southern Democrats? 
who oppose civil rights legislation, they wouldn't be Democrats today. Or those New England uh, Republicans uh, who once played a big role, there are hardly any of them Hardly any of them left in 1994 was one big step in that process. What about you, Eleanor? Well, the Republican Party today, it's completely radicalized. Um, it There's no way for it to be a governing partner to the Democrats. There's no Republican Party today that's recognizable as a governing uh, entity. And I, I don't see that changing. So for a country that's had this really strong two-party system for, for forever, um, this is really a frightening time, and um, that you know, I, I I don't know that we can we can we can't lay all this on the on the feet of of Gingrich, or even on Trump. <laughs> it's it's something in the American people that yearning for some sort of simplistic, you know, power that will save them, and not really thinking through what they're voting for or against, and the the pouring of money and the ads and everything that really, I think, um, pollute our politics, that's only gotten worse. But, you know, to talk about um, controlling uh, political spending, I mean, you're spitting into the wind. I mean, I feel there are so many forces that we we can't control and that are only, only bound to get worse. Well, one thing about Republicans in the midterms that we've le- we learned in 94 with this incredible victory in 94, uh, you know, sort of earth-shaking victory in 94, and with le- a less earth-shaking but nonetheless, you know, uh, essentially era-ending victory in 2010 that brought the sort of activist presidency of Barack Obama to an end, that they don't know what to do with power once they get it. And uh, it's very hard for them to know what to do even if they have a contract with America or they have a tea party that, you know, nominally has ideas about what to do and they, and they bungle it like they, they, and they bungled it in very, very similar ways in, in 2013, 2011, 2013, and in 1995, which is they shut the government down thinking that that, was a good move and was going to be helpful to them and that the country was behind them and the country was never behind them because one thing the government isn't supposed to do is shut down and the people who say we're shutting it down are blamed for shutting it down. So interesting thing is whether as we move into the future, whether Republicans wise, you know, look back to this not very distant past and say, maybe there are things that we should not do, even though we don't like Joe Biden and we want to sort of, you know, not have any more liberal activism. Maybe there are things we can learn from Newt Gingrich's overreach and and the 2011 government shutdown, 2013 government, the Ted Cruz government shutdown. Maybe there are things we can learn about how not to do this. Well, thanks, everyone, for taking part in this. Uh, Really enjoyed the conversation. Hey, thank you. Thank you, Steve. Thanks. I've been talking with columnists John Podhoritz of Commentary Magazine and the New York Post and Eleanor Clift of The Daily Beast and with Susan Page, Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today. And that's it for The Revolution. Thank you for coming along on this journey with me. From MSNBC, this is the final episode of The Revolution. If you like what you've heard, please give us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. 
And be sure to tell your friends and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. The Revolution was written and hosted by me, Steve Kornacki. And if you want to know even more about the roller coaster of politics in the Newt Gingrich era, I wrote a book about it. It's called The Red and the Blue, the 1990s and the Birth of Political Tribalism. The series is produced by Franny Kelly, Ursula Summer, and Adam Naboa. It's edited by Allison McAdam. Our associate producer is Eva Ruth Moravec. Special thanks to Lacey Roberts. Sound designed by Ramteen Arablui. Bryson Barnes is our technical director, and he wrote our music. Soraya Gage is our executive producer. Madeline Herringer is our head of editorial. We'd like to thank C-SPAN and Town Square Media Rochester and KROC-AM. And we're very grateful for the time given to us by Nancy Johnson, Lynn Martin, Gene Cummings, Alexis Scott, and Bob Holmes. Our musicians are Danny Wolf, Liz and John Estes, and Russ Flynn. Many, many others helped make this podcast possible, including Betsy Corona, Jessica Baker, Robin Gradison, Susan Sullivan, Dean Roseman, Nick Offenberg, Reed Cherlin, Frank Rodano, Alexa Correa, Larry Kelly, our excellent NBC News and MSNBC marketing team, and Rashida Jones and Noah Oppenheimer.